Well, today I want to continue on in Galatians, and I want to turn to Galatians chapter 6. We're not going to get very far in Galatians 6 today. In fact, we're going to talk more about chapter 5 than we are 6, but I came across a word in Galatians 6 verse 1 that made me realize that there was a whole lot behind this word and I needed to talk about it. In Galatians 6, it begins by saying, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit, and so on. What I want to talk about today is what it means to be spiritual. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, they of you which are spiritual ought to restore those who have trespassed, points to those obviously who are spiritual as being capable of doing that as if they are more mature, as if they are leaders in the church. What does it mean to be spiritual or to be a heavenly people as Paul sometimes refers to at other places in the New Testament? Now, if you think about the answer to that question, what does it mean to be spiritual or a heavenly people? Really, you're talking about what it means to be a Christian. Because Christian people are to be a spiritual people. They are to be a heavenly people. And in fact, if you recognize it, much of chapter 5 talks about that. In chapter 5, for instance, we have such phrases as walk in the Spirit. Well, in order to walk in the Spirit, you've got to be a spiritual person, don't you? It also says be led of the Spirit, which means to be governed by the Spirit. Well, that speaks of being a spiritual person. Paul talks in chapter 5, we spoke of last week, about the fruits of the Spirit. Well, it's not likely that you and I are going to bear fruits of the Spirit if we aren't spiritual people. It just isn't going to happen, is it? There are other phrases. He says in chapter 5, live in the Spirit. Well, that certainly speaks of spiritual people. And we talked about a bunch of that stuff when we talked about, for instance, what it means to walk in the Spirit. I mentioned when I talked about walking in the Spirit that if nothing else, that means to abide in Christ and to walk in truth. If we're not doing that, we're not walking in the Spirit. You can't walk in the Spirit if you're walking in error and not abiding in Christ. And so we've covered a lot of that ground. But if you gather up all of these phrases and terminologies from chapter 5, it really boils down again to what it means to be a spiritual person, to what it means to be a Christian. And if you remember the ground that we've covered in Galatians, the Galatians had gotten off of that, hadn't, hadn't they? In, in a very real sense of the word. The Galatians had begun with the truth. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul said, you began in the Spirit. In other words, you began walking as spiritual people, but now you've gotten away from that. You've come under another gospel, and you're trying to accomplish what God wants for you in this world 
through fleshly means, natural means, religious means. If we could read between the lines, we could say to the Galatians, parroting the words of Paul, you've taken what God has instituted as a spiritual heavenly experience with them. And we're going to talk about that today. And he would say to the Galatians, and you've, you've just made a religion out of it and tacked on some Bible verses. And you've made this about having church. And you've made this about really not a whole lot to do with fellowship in Christ, but you've made it simply about some religious things to follow. And he would say to them, no, Christianity is not about having a religion. Christianity is about being a heavenly people, a spiritual people who are in communion with Jesus Christ. And everything else flows from there. So I want to talk today about what it means to be that spiritual people. In other words, what it means to be a Christian, in another way of saying it and how this relates to some of these things we've been seeing from Galatians. Now, just up front to get to the core of it, what does it mean to be a Christian or a spiritual person? Well, it certainly means to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've often given that, and that's a quote from book of Colossians, Colossians 1.27, that the definition of Christianity in a nutshell is Christ in you the hope of glory. Now, by extension, we can include how Christ comes to be in you. That's part of Christianity. And we certainly must include the impact that Christ has if he dwells in us, such as the fruits of the Spirit, such as gifts of the Spirit and growth in Christ. All of that is part of Christianity and what it means to be spiritual, but none of it is possible unless Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit. And so at the core of it all, to be a spiritual or heavenly person means to have Christ in you, but by extension, can we see that that means everything that Christ is to us? Now, at the top of the list is that a spiritual person, by virtue of the fact Christ is in them, is in communion with Christ, is abiding in Christ, has a relationship with Christ that governs everything. Haven't you found that as you walk on in the Christian life, that your relationship with Christ, that your knowledge of Him, comes more and more to govern you? Now, there are a lot of different ways to say that. For instance, if I approach a particular event in life, or as I just walk through the routine of life, I'm not going, if I'm maturing in Christ, to be living in that and doing things in life on my own terms to the exclusion of my relationship with Christ, am I? In fact, Christ's relationship with me and my knowledge of who he is, my devotion to him, if I can put it that way, is going to govern all of that, isn't it? And what's that going to result in? It's going to result in obedience. It's going to result in bringing the holiness of God into situations. Not because God threatens me if I don't. To be governed by a relationship with Christ means I gladly do that. Because that's what happens when you are related to Christ by faith. 
you begin to live like it in more and more ways. So to be a spiritual heavenly person certainly means Christ is in you and the impact that it has, which means living according to the truth and being governed by your fellowship and relationship with him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, to be a spiritual person you can't even get started unless Christ is in you, or to say it another way, you can't even get started unless you are born again of the Holy Spirit. And let's t- turn to John chapter 3 for a minute to look at this. This is the passage in the Gospels that speaks most extensively about being born again. And as we do, let's note the, the great distinction here that Jesus gives between being born into this world naturally and being born again of the Holy Spirit. If Christians are spiritual people or a heavenly people, it isn't just a theological tag, is it? It's talking about our nature. It's talking about our identity by virtue of our relationship with Christ. You must, Jesus said, be born again of the Holy Spirit, or you're not a spiritual person. Now, you can be of another spirit, God forbid, but it is not a person of the Holy Spirit unless you are born again. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, and Nicodemus was asking questions about the kingdom of God, and I'm sure because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was well-trained in Bible, Old Testament, of course, and knew the Jewish religion, he would have been interpreting everything Jesus said along the line of what he knew. That's what we all do. And I'm sure that Nicodemus probably thought he knew a whole bunch of stuff about the kingdom of God. It's through the Old Testament. It's in there. And yet Jesus was able to say to him in verse 3 here in John, Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if there's one thing that we become aware of when we read a verse like that, is we become aware of the fact that there really is a whole other realm of things than this natural realm. There is a spiritual realm. Jesus says so. It's really God's realm. The realm that we're talking about that's the spiritual realm is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, listen... Born into this world as a natural human being in Adam, like we all are, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You can't know it. You have no frame of reference for it. Now, that's what it says here, and we're going to read a couple other verses that says it just as clearly. And you and I sort of believe that because it's in the Bible, but I wonder sometimes how much we really do believe it. Do we really understand that unless a person is born again from above, they can't see it. They can't get it. They can't. They don't have the faculties necessary for it. They can understand something intellectually, theologically. They can memorize Bible verses. They can even teach them to others. But unless a person is born again, they cannot see the things of God. They can't see Jesus. They can't see the kingdom of God. 
It's because you have to have the Spirit in you to be able to do that. Now, this must have been almost like an insult to Nicodemus. It doesn't say he took it that way, but can you imagine this Pharisee standing there who was a leader in the Sanhedrin who probably considered him to be a Bible, himself to be a Bible expert and a teacher? And he comes to Jesus and he asks him some questions and Jesus says to him, listen, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. We can't even get started in this discussion. And so if we see nothing else from this right off the bat, we see that in order to be a spiritual person, you have to be born again of the Spirit of God. Or we can't even get out of the starting gate. Now Nicodemus thought that Jesus was talking about some kind of an actual physical birth in verse 4. He says, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb? And so he got the point Jesus was making that Jesus was talking about a new birth. He got that much right, but he didn't understand that Jesus was talking not about a new physical birth, but that Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. And Jesus explains, verse 5, he says, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, now that's death and resurrection, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 6 really seals the deal on this. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And we could probably put in parentheses, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, will always be the flesh and can never be anything but flesh. Flesh can only gender flesh. It can't gender anything else. That's why Jesus also said that a good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. Remember from last week, what you've got to do is you've got to make the tree of a different nature. You've got to make a bad tree into a good tree. Then it can bear fruit. Otherwise, you just continue to procreate according to your kind, as it says in Genesis. Adam died spiritually in the book of Genesis, didn't he? And from then on, all that he could do was reproduce himself. Reproduce spiritually dead human beings. That which is born of flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, that which is born of the Spirit is a spiritual human being. You want to know how to become a heavenly person? A spiritual person, same thing, same terminology. You have to be born again of the Spirit of God. And then in that case, you will begin to see and know things that you could not otherwise. Because you have the very life of Christ in you. Now Paul harped on this continuously, but he didn't harp on it to unbelievers. He harped on it to Christians. Now... Why, if you're born again, would you continue maybe not to be able to see some things? Well, if we just draw an analogy between the spiritual birth and a natural birth, we can see why that would be. For instance, when a physical newborn baby comes into this world, their eyes aren't even opened, are they? They have to adjust to the new life into which they have been born. They, to a certain degree, recognize their mother or father's voice, 
but they play with their feet because they don't know what a foot is yet. They have to learn from scratch, don't they, about the realm into which they have been born, and they have to have their eyes open to it. Well, that's true spiritually, isn't it? When you are a newborn babe in Christ, newly born again, you have a brand new life in you that you received from above that you were not born naturally with. But not only do you have to learn all about that, but there's another problem that a physical baby doesn't have that you have when you are born again spiritually. Not only do you have all the new stuff to learn about Jesus, but we have all the old stuff to unlearn, don't we? And unfortunately, they are usually contrary to the new stuff. Flesh wars against the Spirit. And so when we are born again, that's a sealed deal. You and I are not saved or born again progressively. We are born again all at once. It has to happen at a point in time. But that just births us. Now we have to grow in accordance to, to what we were born as, as a baby does, as a natural baby does. You have to grow up mature in Christ. And so... You can't even see the kingdom of God until you are born again, but even after you are born again, maybe you don't see the kingdom of God too good or too well. You have to learn who Jesus is. You have to have your mind renewed according to the truth. And all of this is a process. Paul constantly, as I mentioned, harped on this with Christians, the necessity of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we turn to Ephesians for a second... And certainly this would be his prayer to the Galatians. It would be his prayer for us. I've spoken of this passage before, Ephesians 1.16. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church. It is part of the inerrant, inspired word of God, so I think we can conclude, can we not, that this is an expression of God's desire for us. Now, when you read this, you read two things. You not only read what God's desire is for us, but you also are reading a description of our need. Paul's not going to pray that our eyes be opened if he already thinks they are open, is he? So this gives us a little clue as to what we all need, because Paul's praying that that need be satisfied. He says in Ephesians 1.16, I give thanks to you in verse 15, but he says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now notice what Paul, and by extension God, wants for Christians. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So what's the focus there? The focus there is that we might know... Jesus. Paul is saying, I want you to know. I want your heart to be open and for God to give you a revelation of Jesus Christ. Which, of course, is a revelation of the truth. Because Jesus is the truth. And he says what the result of this is going to be in verse 18. 
that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and so on. So, what does God want for Christians? We just read. And if you read the epistles, you'll find that it keeps coming back to this. He wants us, yes, to be born again, but then after we are born again, we are able to see the kingdom of God. We are able to begin to grow to know Christ. And Paul's great prayer is that our eyes might be opened and that we may not only see Christ, but then by extension, as we just read, that we might see his purpose in our lives, his eternal purpose. And so we ask the question, title for today, what are spiritual people, what are heavenly people? Well, there are people who are coming into the knowledge of all of this, aren't they? They are people in whose lives and in whose experience this prayer is being answered. Now, if you see this and begin to think about it as it practically applies to a person's life, you can see that a person who is involved in this, where God is working this out in their lives, that person at some point really is going to be, if we can use a vernacular phrase, this person is really going to be marching to the beat of a different drum, aren't they? And isn't that true for Christians? Christians aren't motivated by, nor do we live by, earthly considerations. Now again, process, we need to grow. But Christians, by definition, if we are spiritual people, are living according to another principle, another government, really. Talk about being governed by the Holy Spirit. You and I, if we are truly spiritual people, by definition are governed by the spiritual, by the Holy Spirit. We don't march to the beat of the drum of the world. We march to the beat of truth and of light and of revelation of the Christ. We are governed, as I said earlier, by our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that takes us many places through many experiences in life. But on the inside of us, despite the fact that the outside could be in chaos, despite the fact that the outside of your life might look the same as the outside of an unbeliever's life, the inside isn't the same, is it? Because you have the Holy Spirit, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, in the middle of the mess of life, but you're governed by Him, not by the mess. And so spiritual people, if we grow to get there, are governed by the Holy Spirit in the midst of the mess down here called life. Now, unbelievers are pretty much governed by what? Well, they're governed by life down here. They're governed by the natural. And so we see that there is a government under question here. 
Now, if you look at that term, kingdom of God, you see government, don't you? The kingdom of God is the rule or government of God over whatever God is governing. And if that happens to be you or I, then it can be said that the kingdom of God is within us. So to be born again and see the kingdom of God and come into the kingdom of God, that leads to being governed by God in the midst of a temporal, natural world. How many times Jesus said things like, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. In other words, to the normal, natural eye, you and I look just like anybody else looks. But if we're really walking with Christ, we're not, are we? Because we are governed by a completely different government. We're governed by a heavenly government, which is why we are heavenly people. And that can lead to some pretty terrific experiences in life with Jesus Christ, both that speak of the cross, which we think is negative, it's really positive, but also in a lot of great blessings. Now, Paul wants our eyes to be opened to see the truth. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks a little bit more about the distinction between the natural and the spiritual. And this is so important to get a distinction. One of the biggest challenges that we have as a Christian person is being able to discern the difference between the natural and the spiritual. Isn't that true? Even in our own selves. I'm sure that everybody here has had issues in life where you've asked the question, well, is this of God or is it just of me? Or is God doing that or is it just coincidence? That kind of a question. And in this day and age of apostasy, in this day and age which Jesus said there would be signs, wonders, and miracles that are so convincing that even the elect, if possible, could be deceived, we certainly need to be able to discern the truth and that which is spiritual. And in 1 Corinthians 2, we begin to see some other things along this line. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 9. Now again, notice the impossibility, unless you are born again, of knowing God. He says, I has not seen nor has ear heard. Notice the senses again being brought into into place, spiritual senses versus the physical senses. I has not seen nor has the ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But, Paul says, God has revealed these unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. I want to skip down to verse 12. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Can we see so very clearly that again, unless you and I have the Spirit of God, we can't know the things of God. We haven't got a clue. 
What did Jesus, I'm not going to turn there, John 8, look it up later. Great conversation to go through in a study. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? They missed the boat. They didn't even understand what he was talking about. Completely misinterpreted him. And at one point in John 8, there about verse 45, 47, he said to them, he asked the question, why don't you understand what I'm saying? And he said to them as the answer to his own question, he that is of God hears the words of God. You don't hear my words because you are not of God. In other words, these learned Bible experts, and I'm not putting down being a Bible expert, we need to know our word of God, and we need to know it thoroughly because it tells us what Christianity is in written form. But these guys knew the Bible cover to cover, what Bible they had at the time, and they looked at the incarnate Son of God standing right in front of them and said, He has a devil. That's so much the Bible knowledge, how much good it did for them. And the reason that they did that was because they knew the Bible, but they did not know God. And they had not been born again, of course, and they did not have the Spirit of God even with them, let alone in them. And yet they had all Bible verses. He says it right there. He says, why don't you understand me? Because you are not of God. And so it's impossible. Now can we see all in all of this one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith? The fact that God has to initiate every man's salvation. God has to begin to call somebody to Christ or we really wouldn't even know where to get started. Now at that point we can refuse. There is no such thing as unconditional election. That's a false doctrine. God's election of somebody to Christ brings the light and the choice. And that person can refuse Christ or they can embrace Him. And God will never stop calling them. It's a lifelong sin if you refuse Christ. Talk about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not a one-time slip-up. The unpardonable sin is a lifetime sin. Resisting the continual call of God. And so God has to initiate by bringing light into our darkness. And we do have a choice. And we can see again here from 1 Corinthians 2 that unless God does that, the natural man has no chance. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.14, later here along the line in this chapter, it says, but the natural man, this is somebody who is not born again, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now why is, or why are, the things of God foolish to the natural man? There are a number of reasons why that is. Now, let me just say one reason why they are not foolish to the natural man, because you hear this on TV. I actually have a videotape that I'm going to show at our next Bible study that shows what's going on in some of these revival meetings and home fellowships where they're, they're into all these crazy things. And in one of them, people are rolling on the floor. There's a girl shrieking in agony. And the pastor is standing up front with a microphone saying, 
God is killing the old mind. And, and that this is what God's doing today, and it appears foolish to the natural man. Therefore, you ought to accept all of this craziness, even though it doesn't make sense to you. See how people can turn things around? And they can get to where they make accepting absolute idiocy, they can make that almost seem like it's a good thing to do. Because we're not supposed to understand what God's doing with the natural mind. Well, that isn't what it says in the Bible. It says you can't understand it or obtain it by the natural mind, but what are we supposed to do? Walk around mindlessly? Do we think that Christianity is is a relationship with Christ wherein we understand nothing? Wouldn't that be stupid and silly? How could you live? How could you preach? How could you teach? How could you put anything into practical practice unless understanding eventually came? No, what God is saying here in 1 Corinthians 2, and this is really important in this day and age uh, to get this down, He is saying that no part of the natural man can drag down truth or revelation from heaven, neither is there anything inherent in natural man, either intellectually or emotionally, that can create truth. He is saying truth comes only by revelation. Now, having settled that, can we see that once I receive the truth by revelation that there's going to be a process wherein by I eventually come to understand? Of course there is. God does not, as it says in this crazy tape I have, killing the natural mind. I'll tell you what God's doing. God is filling the natural mind with truth. And as a result, renewing the mind, as Paul says, according to the truth, so that it operates governed by the truth. So in other words, you and I cannot think our way into the kingdom of God. That's a fact, our natural mind. If we're unsaved, it doesn't matter what kind of brain power we have. We cannot think ourselves born again. Of course not. Because we have to repent and come into a relationship with God through Christ. That's not about brain power. That's a moral surrender. But can you even understand the gospel unless you have some understanding? No. So, even though we can't conjure up truth out of the resources of our brain power, once God reveals truth to us through a new birth, through his calling or whatever it is, as we go on with God, what happens? We begin to understand, don't we? We understand, yes, spiritually, but we understand with our mind because we have to live and we have to have relationships and we have to put on Christ. And to say otherwise is absolutely ridiculous. Read the writings of the Apostle Paul. Does it seem like he understood a few things? I would have to say the man was about as brilliant as they come. And yet he's the very one that wrote, the natural mind cannot receive the things of God if that's all you have to work with. And yet once he did receive the things of God, then can we see 
that he was able to understand some things eventually, not because that's what it was all about. He was able to understand because he was rightly related to Christ. And then express them in the form of teaching. Another way to explain this comes from Proverbs. It says there, the beginning of wisdom. It's in there three or four times. You can look it up later. The beginning of wisdom is what? Studying real hard? I study. I'm sure you do too. It's a great thing to do. Get the Word of God inside of you uh, by studying. He says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. In other words, once we begin to become rightly related to God by faith, surrender, devotion... It's amazing how your thinking clears up along the line of the things of God. If we surrender to God, we're going to begin to understand a thousand times more than study could have caused us to understand. And God won't throw away to study. He'll make it and he'll bring meaning to it, really. He'll begin to show us what it means. So if you want to understand the Bible and want to understand truth, you need to see Jesus. And the way you get to see Jesus, Jesus said so right in the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Get your heart pure and your eyes single and settle for nothing less than the full will of God in Jesus Christ. So, intellect can't obtain truth, but once God gives truth through a relationship and revelation of Christ, then we have to come to know it and explain it and understand it so we can live it. Another component of the natural man that we often use as a substitute for the spirit are emotions. We are trained in our natural man to more or less accept what we feel right about. And you know what that feeling is. You just, it just clicks with you. You feel right about it. We tend to accept that as truth has nothing to do with truth at all. In fact, I would dare say that you cannot believe with your emotions. Now that may come as a real uh, revelation. I know it did for me. But emotions do not have a believing capacity to them. They don't. Emotions don't believe. Emotions react. Now, because our natural man is in darkness to such a, an extent and don't have anything to believe, really, until God brings light, we can't tell the difference. But if you think about it, is the way that you feel about anything, does that make what you feel about true or false? No. I gave an example one time. If you pulled back the covers on your bed and somebody had put a rubber snake in your bed, you would react to that very strongly emotionally. You might, you might have a heart attack or something, God forbid. Now ask yourself the question, does it matter at that point once you react whether that snake was real or rubber? No, because to you it was real. And you reacted and it felt exactly the same as it would have if the snake were real. But you reacted because you believed a lie. And so your emotions have nothing to do with the facts. They just react to what you think are the facts. And this can get very confusing in this day and age. Again, some of these things that happen 
uh, at the prayer meetings that you see on TV and all of that, you see these tremendous emotional experiences that people have. I've been in meetings where people have fallen down, supposedly slain by the Spirit. I've been in meetings where people have seemingly worshipped God. And hey, I'm not putting down anybody that worships God with their hands raised. If that's a meaningful experience for them, that's fine. The Bible talks about worshipping God with raised hands. It's biblical. But here's my distinction. We may, if we see Jesus or are convicted by the Holy Spirit, we may react emotionally. I would dare say we should. How could you see Jesus? How could you have an experience with Him or be convicted maybe of sin or something like that in the negative and not react emotionally? You ought to. It's an earth-shattering experience. That's good and that's right. Can we see, though, that 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 emotion is our reaction to the truth? Our emotion isn't God. In other words, we can react to God emotionally, and all things need to be done decently and in order, as the Bible says. We can react to God emotionally, but God never acts upon people and makes them be emotional. You see people rolling on the floor, clucking like chickens, barking like dogs, as I said last couple weeks in in some of these uh, videos. There's this one girl that thinks she's on fire and she's running around screaming in agony, running into the wall. It's a very disturbing thing. And at the end of the day, the question is, is this what happens when God touches somebody? And the answer is, no, it isn't. This is what happens when another spirit gets control. And you have all of these emotional reactions happening And we can think that the emotional reaction is the Holy Spirit. It isn't. The emotional reaction is us. And it may be in reaction to the Holy Spirit, or it may be like the rubber snake principle. It may be in reaction to something we think is of God and isn't. Lots of people can react emotionally because they think God's doing something. And the reaction is absolutely real, just like the one to the rubber snake. But at the end of the day, maybe God wasn't even in the room, if you know what I'm saying. And yet it seems so real because everybody reacted. I have been in meetings, and I kid you not, I'm going back a long time now, 30 years. I have been in meetings where people have been prostrate on the floor toward God over a particular issue. And it was only later that I found out that the whole thing was a lie. The whole thing was a lie. What they were prostrate over wasn't even the truth. They thought it was, and they thought it was God. And those things can be practiced over and over again along any number of lines. And they seem so real. And we say to ourselves, that many people couldn't be deceived. Well, yes, they could. And it's been going on that way for 2,000 years. The number of people under a deception never makes something true. Did you ever notice that? That's why it's so important as we talk about what it means to be spiritual people 
that the center of it all is truth in Jesus Christ. Said it before, say it again. The Bible, the written word of God, is a description of Christianity, what God wants to do in our life, what we need to do to obey Him. And in that written word, well, it covers every component of the Christian experience. Consequently, any experience that we have, we should be able to verify in the written word. But conversely, everything in the written word should be also in our experience. We have two extremes in Christianity today. On the one hand, you have a group of people that think that the Christian life is nothing more than an academic, theological, intellectual Bible study. And they will tell you in anger, some of them will, that the written word is all there is to the Christian life. And they forget that the written word itself tells you that we are to experience what's written in there. So you have the one extreme. It's all academic and theological. But then you have the other extreme, and it's along the line of what I was talking about on some of these videos. You have people that think it's all experience, and they never go to the written word to see if it's affirmed there. Someone once said that the truth on the matter is really as follows. Jesus Christ, the Bible, calls the living word. But the Bible is the written word. And the two are always going to agree, aren't they? Because there is only one truth. The Bible's the written version, Jesus is the living version, and he never does anything that will depart from the written version. And so you always have those two dynamics going hand in hand, the Bible and experience. So the natural man cannot receive the things of God, Paul says. And yet there are these natural components of each one of us that can get out of hand. The intellect, the emotions, and so forth. And yet the basis of it, we're seeing, the, of the basis of the truth of life in Christ is what? It is Christ himself. It is the truth. And it is what the Holy Spirit is doing according to what Scripture says he will do. Let's turn to Hebrews 11 for the last thing I want to share today about what it means to be spiritual. Spiritual people are born again of the Spirit. Spiritual people are under the government of the Spirit. And all that that means. Natural man can't achieve that. But finally, spiritual people are citizens of another government or or kingdom. And this is not simply, again, a theological point. It is theological. It's in the Bible. But what I'm saying is that spiritual people are citizens of another government, really. Not just in theory, but really. We do march to a beat of another drum. We don't live here if we're going on in Christ. In fact, we might say, and we're going to read here from Hebrews 11, that those who are born again in Christ are actually supposed to more and more and more live detached from this natural realm, but attached to Christ. In other words, abiding in Christ, abiding in Him as our vine, 
which by definition will detach us from being governed by this natural realm. Hebrews 11 rehearses many of the saints, many of uh, the adventures of the saints of old. And I want to read here in verse 8. It's really a great cataloging of what it means to be a citizen of heaven, a heavenly person. We think of heavenly people as some kind of a super spiritual, super Christian, and all this kind of thing. Well, God wants that for each and every one of us. And yet, through natural means, as we've been seeing, it's impossible. If my words today make you feel that this is absolutely impossible and unattainable, then I think I'm getting my point across, because it is. If you can figure, a way how to, if you can figure out a way how to do this in your own strength, then you're missing it. Because this is a product of being born again and going on with God in what he's doing. By faith, Abraham, verse 8, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. How many know that you and I, if we are born again and called of God, have been called into a place that we afterward are to receive as an inheritance? We've been called to Christ. We are seated with Christ. Colossians 3.1, I think it is, in heavenly places. We have been called into another kingdom. We're dying to the old kingdom. We're born again into a new kingdom. We are called to come into a place where there's an inheritance. And it says here in verse 8, And Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. How many can identify with that? If you have a road map all laid out for your Christian life. Not, and I'm not even talking about the lot in life or circumstances that you're going to encounter in life, such as relationships, job, family. All those things, of course, are included under the government of God. But I'm talking about your experience in this spiritual kingdom or land. If you have that all laid out as a road map, then I'd back up a few steps. You're probably off the track we really don't know where we're going. All that we know is the person who is leading us. And there is a lot in the Christian life like that, practically speaking. I often have said, Lord, I haven't got a clue as to where all this is going, but you do. And I know who is leading me down this path, and so I will hold your hand. And that's a walk of faith, really, isn't it? I don't know where I'm going, but I know the one leading, and I trust him. And it's not a game. It has to be that way because, again, our eyes are getting accustomed to the light, and God can't give us too much at once or it'll blind us. It says there, by faith, Abraham sojourned in the land of promise. This is this new land as in a strange or foreign country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he, Abraham, looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now verses 9 and 10 that I just read in a very uh, big way is a description of the Christian life. It is a description of what it means to be spiritual and a heavenly people. 
we come to the place where we are detached from this world. It's not that we are irresponsible or don't take care of business. Of course we do. We have bills to pay, we got to go to work, all of that's there. But the point is we are doing that not as belonging to this world. We are doing it as people who belong to God, as citizens of another country. And Paul describes here, really if you look at this, He's describing this life as a foreign land through which we are journeying toward a better country. How many have recognized, understatement of the century, you're about to hear it. How many have recognized that this life isn't it? It isn't. It says it right here as if we needed to be told. This life and everything that goes with it is nothing more than a tool to get us to what is it. We are traveling through a foreign country, which is the outward, but we have a new country inward because we're a citizen of that new country. And as we walk through this life, we encounter things, we take care of business, but it's all unto the eternal. God will use the temporal things in our lives, money, jobs, family, to further his eternal purposes. Again, we have to live a practical life, not some mindless existence. But it's all unto the eternal. What does Paul say? I think it's in Corinthians somewhere. It's almost, again, one of those ironic understatements. He says, for the temporary light affliction of this life, works unto an eternal weight of glory. Notice the irony there in the comparison. We get it backwards. We think there's an incredible, incredible burden in this life. And then when we get that done, we'll have it easy. Because it'll all be blessing and all that. And there's some truth to that, of course. We're not going to bear those burdens off into heaven. But Paul turns it around and he says, these are just light afflictions because it's working toward an eternal weight of glory. What must it be like to be weighed down by the glory of God? That'll be a good experience, I think, when we, we come into that. But he says of Abraham, and remember Abraham came out of his home, left everything, came into this foreign land that God promised him, didn't have a clue, didn't have a friend, didn't have any way of earning a living, had no inheritance. It was all where God put him, and God said, trust me. I'm going to work from absolute zero, ground zero, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. How many recognize that Abraham not only lost everything, but by the time God worked with him, he, he was nothing. He was too old to even have Isaac, except it be by a miracle. But anyway, dwelling in tabernacles, your life and my life is a tabernacle in a wilderness. In a very real sense of the word. We are dwelling in a tabernacle named Jesus in a world that is in the process of passing away. Don't just think the world's going to pass away. It is, but it's in the process, and so is the whole Adam race. And we're, we're journeying through this land as strangers and sojourners. And look in verse 10 again. Abraham looked for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. How many recognize that in this world there is nothing that has a foundation? 
and that the only foundation is the one the Bible says is the only foundation, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that so very often. He said, if you build your house on sand, you may have the prettiest, most magnificent life and the greatest accomplishment, and you bring visitors over and show them this wonderful thing you've done. He says, it's only standing because a strong enough storm hasn't come along. He's saying, there's nothing of this temporal life that has any foundations because the very thing upon which it's built is going to also fade away. He said, Abraham, despite the fact that he was in this foreign land and owned nothing, had no rights, he nevertheless looked to really what it boils down to is he looked to the eternal. He looked to the real city that has true foundations. In other words, God's will, God's glory, God's eternal purposes. So spiritual people, heavenly people, look to a city that has foundations. That city, even though the temporal is fading away, how many know that right now God's building already on Jesus Christ a new city? He's building the new Jerusalem. Don't think that's a physical city coming down from heaven. It's a people that God's building. And it says so in Revelation. It's the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. God is building that now. So to live for eternal purposes, to live for God in this world, unto God's glory, that's what it means to have true foundations, and that's what it means to be a heavenly or spiritual people, because you are involved and have as your goal the heavenly and eternal. And you know what Jesus said? He said, if you seek that first, I'll be free to provide all the physical. If you look for a city that has foundations... Jesus said, I can give you other things because you won't make them your foundations. They won't hurt you if I give you things because you have the right foundation and so I can be free to provide for you in every other way. Let's finish this up. He looked for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And then it talks about the fact that through faith Sarah herself received strength to conceive and delivered and so on. Notice in verse 13, though, after uh, the writer of Hebrews has rehearsed a whole bunch of these people who had faith. This is the hall of fame, in other words, of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. All these Bible heroes did this stuff. He says, And all of these died in faith, not having received the promises, in other words, not having seen them come to pass in the temporal realm because these aren't fulfilled temporally. But having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed, here's what people in faith confessed, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek another country. And truly, if they had been mindful or desirous of the temporal country from which they came, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now, Paul says, these desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
So again, heavenly people, spiritually people, are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, abiding in the vine, in communion with Christ, but unto something, unto eternal purposes. Not just, not just out here, but unto eternal purposes in here. That we may become living witnesses and living evidence of Christ in this world. That we may be ambassadors for Christ, as Paul says elsewhere. That this is what God wants to do. He wants to make us living evidence of himself in this temporal world. And we can't become that unless we are detached from this world, but attached to him. And isn't that what it means to be a citizen of heaven? It means that we are not a citizen of this world. We have no rights. We have no citizenship rights. Our citizenship is up there. And we, dra- we travel through this life as a temporal realm, going about business, raising families, going and having jobs, under God's glory as a witness to Him. But our home is not here. We're traveling through to our real home. In fact, it could be said in a very real sense of the word, Our home is already in us. You know who the people are that go to heaven? People go to heaven that already have heaven in them. And, of course, you only have heaven in you if you have the embodiment of heaven in you, Jesus. And that's what it means to be a heavenly person. So for today, Paul says in Galatians, going back there, you that are spiritual... Spiritual people are people who belong to Christ in the midst of a temporal world and who by virtue of that are able to have as their motivation God's, God's will to His glory no matter what unto eternal purposes.